0: Stephen's getting the silent treatment. He forgot he had to pick his girlfriend, Kate, up from Zumba class and he'd had two beers. On, it's just two drinks, she said. Two drinks. It's just too risky, he thought. <laughs> he knew that a second drink can double the chance of a fatal collision. So Kate got the boss in a sweaty lycra. She doesn't do buses. She does do silent treatments. Stephen, getting the silent treatment, but alive. Think, if you've had that drink, don't drive.
1: It's David Rimmel. How you doing, buddy?
0: I'm doing pretty good, man. It's been a, a good week, I think, for Miami Heat. A, a turbulent up-and-down week, I'd say. I
1: wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, that Friday night Game 6 was amazing. The blowout Game 7 win was amazing in a different way, just not nearly as stressful as Game 6 was. Um... And now the Heat are moving on to the second round to play the Raptors, but we're going to get all, to all of that in a, in a second. We're going to digest round one against the Hornets. We're going to preview and break down uh, the second round series against the Raptors. But first, uh, Dan Lebertard had a little interesting report this morning about um, a rift developing between the Miami Heat and Chris Bosh, and that Chris Bosh might even go to the Players Union to try to get reinstated, basically, to play with the Heat to get back on the court. Um, So we're going to address that elephant in the room before we get into that more fun X's and O's reaction and breakdown stuff for the games that are actually happening. But um, I can't imagine that a lot of people haven't heard about this that are listening to this podcast, but just to briefly recap, Dan Lebertard said on his radio show Monday morning that um, the heat, well I guess I'll just read the quote, I guess it's probably easier, huh?
0: Well, I, I think I think it, I think I mean not that that didn't happen with Levitard, but I think there might be some rumblings going back from a few days before mm-hmm. when his wife, I believe, posted a Snapchat video of Bosch shooting jumpers, right? And then and it included the hashtag bring back #BringBackBosch.
1: Bring back Bosch, yeah.
0: And 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 they, from there, it's kind of snowballed a little bit. Some TNT commentators on Sunday night said, I think Kenny Smith said that he's been hearing rumblings from Chris Bosch's camp that he wants to play, and then it kind of... I guess it's just boiled over, and, and right. then Lebetard came out with his story today.
1: Right, and the... Um, so I'll just read what he said on air. My, the the Heat are telling me they're protecting him from him, him being Bosch, but he doesn't feel any symptoms. This doesn't feel like the same... This doesn't feel like the last time, right? All the doctors that are talking Jesus, I'm having a hard time with this. All the doctors that Heat are talking to and they are the foremost authority on this stuff, they're all saying, hey, a second occurrence of a blood clot situation can be catastrophic where you've got a death on the court. He and his wife want him back on the court, and I think this might get messy because I think they're trying to get the union involved, the union being the players' union. They do not agree with the Heat's assessment and he wants back on the court. They've scoured the globe trying to find a doctor who will clear them, and they've got someone that they feel comfortable about, but that does not pair against the numbers of opinions on the other side here. So, basically, yeah, exactly what we said. Bosch might go to the union. He's looking for a doctor to clear him. He's currently on blood thinners. Uh, Multiple reports, multiple scientific data say that you cannot play with blood thinners. I mean, even in the matter of, like, just brief physical activity, let alone playing a professional physical sport like nba basketball so um the heat obviously taking the cautionary approach here as they have been bosch obviously feeling the itch to get back on the court are you worried that this is creating a rift within the organization between bosch and and the heat's front office
0: i would be but i have to be honest with you so much of this seems Suspicious, like like there doesn't seem to be any kind of real root to this other than Levitard having stated this. And I know you and I were talking about it before the podcast that he's not the kind of guy to make up a story like this. And he's certainly connected to the Miami Heat, Miami Heat front office. But this doesn't seem like, you know, the kind of behavior that we've seen from Bosch in the past. You know, he flew with a team to Charlotte. He's been a, a fixture on the sideline. He's been practicing. If anybody knows what his what the health risks are, it would be him. And for you know, as he as Levitard pointed out in his piece, you know, if he's going around just looking for the one guy, the one doctor who's willing to say, yeah, sure, you can go out and play, no problem. And I think there were some rumors that it might have been for the blood clot medicine, the pharmaceutical company that provides the blood clot medicine that 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 uh, Chris Bosch advertises mm. for. Is that did you hear any of that?
1: I haven't heard this, but...
0: Yeah, yeah. apparently, so a doctor who produces the medicine that Chris Bosch you know, advertises on television said, yeah, sure, you can go ahead and play. But every other doctor who has no affiliation either with the company or with the team said no. If he goes out there, there's a very good chance that... I, I think I heard that even if you take like a fall, it could create a, a potentially fatal blood clot. So right. NBA players take falls all the damn time, I mean, much less a severe injury playing in the low post, you know, going up against guys like Jonas Valanciunas or Patrick Patterson that are all elbows and and, and pretty rough players. You can't imagine Chris Bosh going up against those guys in the next round of the playoffs and not sustaining some kind of an injury. You kind of have to side with the organization. As much as you and I and most of the Miami Heat fan base want to see Chris Bosh out there, it it doesn't seem like it's a, a wise decision at this point.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk. Does he want to return to playing while taking blood thinners? Does he want to, or is he looking for an opinion to get off blood thinners? Is it okay for him to take to stop taking blood thinners so that he can play without that, you know, issue of being on blood thinners? Right. Um, so there's a little bit of a gray area there. Uh, the Heat obviously don't want him to stop taking blood thinners if he needs them. So I think there's that. Sure. I think there's... You know, and you hate to bring it down to just this, but you wonder if it's Mickey Arison just saying, I don't want a lawsuit on this stuff. I don't want to deal with it. It's too much of an issue. Let's get through the season. We'll reevaluate everything when stuff calms down, when there's no basketball being played in the offseason. And it might just be from top down, from Mickey Arison down throughout the organization, you're not playing Chris Bosh. He could travel with the team, but he's not taking... Right? Didn't, didn't he not... Like, he took his own transportation or when he went to the I, games of Charlotte?
0: Originally, I think he had. He met the team there or maybe even flew on Arison's private plane. And then at one point, I think the next time, I think he did that for games three and four that were in Charlotte. Yeah. He went there on his own. And then for Game Six back in Charlotte, he flew with the team. And I remember right. Ira Winderman from the Sun Central specifically saying, first time he's traveled with the team since the original diagnosis." So, um, so, could so he he's like yeah, that? he's it could
1: just be a lawsuit issue. Something like Arison. I mean, we don't know who this person in the organization is. It could be Eric Strah. Right. It could be Pat Riley. We could be Alonzo Morning. I don't. It, we don't know who it is. Um, and just
0: so to answer your original question, then I mean, it, yeah, if it's true, if all the stories are true then it certainly seems like it could create a rift. Mm. I just don't buy that it is. And it's everything that we're seeing from Bosch and the organization, the way they've embraced him since the injury, the way he's traveled with the team and he's there as a cheerleader, a mentor. You saw him talking to Hassan Whiteside when he yes. got into foul trouble, kind of calming him down. This doesn't seem like a guy who's pissed off at the organization and wants to lash out at them through the players' union. So not to discredit Levitard completely, but um, it doesn't seem like there's a rift right now. Do you agree or disagree? What's your take on it?
1: My problem is that I think in this hot take era and this 140 character making an opinion really fast, it's either yeah. there's a rift or there's not a rift. And there could be a rift, but I think Chris Bosh is enough of a grown-up and cares enough about this organization and the impact he's already had on it on the court for most of the season, and then now on the bench as basically another coach. Um, very, I think Bosh is very clearly impacting the game, even though he's not playing. He's coaching up the rookies, he's coaching up Whiteside like you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, he's enough of a grown-up to let that subside during you know, gameplay and, and he's also allowing himself to be a part of the organization, and impact the organization, um, the best yeah. he can. So yeah, maybe there's, I mean, yeah, maybe well, there's an issue here. And if, and if LeBertard's report is true, what he's saying, then there clearly is an issue, but that issue is also not something where Bosch is letting it boil over and become a distraction. That word that everybody likes to use distraction.
0: Okay, I hadn't thought about this until you just mentioned it right now and put it in certain context for me. That's just the way my brain works. But thinking about it, is it possible that maybe maybe there's a little bit of ego involved and in, in Chris Bosch is seeing this team successful? And to say, damn it, I should be out there. I should be a big part of this team's success. And the fact that he's not, maybe that it has to sting a little bit, right? I mean, these guys, they're they're, you know, world class athletes. They they expect all the accolades that come from building so, a team. Man. You know, he it, gave it's possible, awesome, right?
1: He gave up ego with the LeBron, like, he, like that first year, the whole Bosh Spice year, year one. Sure. I think that just broke the ego out of him. I just Okay, I but
0: know. he was still out there contributing yeah. and improving people that were in the know. You know obviously, he, you know, he still was getting the respect of coaches. He got it this season, but he's seen the team kind of move on without him, you know, shifting Deng a little bit, incorporating Joe Johnson, getting the rookies involved. You know, not to call him a full-right, you know, asshole or anything like that, but at the same time, it's got to sting a little bit, right? Seeing the team kind of move on without you. I, you know, not to disparage him or the kind of person he is. I don't know for certain, but maybe there is a little bit of ego involved. Anyway, it might, be whatever.
1: There. It, might be, it might be like, you know what, this sucks. Like, I want to be out there. This team has been, like, getting more national attention than ever, ever since I've been out of the lineup. There's been talks, are the Heat better without Bosch? I don't think anybody smart really puts that forward. But it's been in there. It's been in the limelight that conversation. Um, Sure. But I think there's just there's got to be so many emotions. Like maybe that's one of so many. But I think even worse is just not playing. It just seems for him, just not playing is like the worst emotion. Just like that sadness or that that eagerness to get onto the court. I think there's that. I think there's like the highs of when the Heat are playing well. I think he really does take pride in that. Like to tweet Dwayne Wade's my hero, like he did after as soon as Game Six was over. And Goran of, Dragic too, right? I it, think he's right. sounds
0: similar for here.
1: And so I think, yeah, maybe there's a that that must sting a little bit, but there's just there's gotta be so many things like, like I've been saying, it's not, it can't be black and white. There's 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 so many emotions mixed up into this thing. So yeah, maybe there's a rift, but maybe and then that rift doesn't really matter, and then sometimes it maybe does matter. I don't know. Um,
0: you know. And we still haven't heard anything from the team, nor will we, right? I don't think they're liable to address this just because of Lebretard's story. So it, you know, it's it's likely an issue that's going to be swept under. Either he's going to come out at some point and join the team, or he's not until the end of the season, and we'll probably get some more clarification when Riley does his end of season post conference. But for now, it's it's just something to talk about. Everybody wants to see Chris Bosch there, and I can understand why all of the Heat fan base and Heat Twitter want to see Chris Bosch out there. He's been such a big part of the team for five years now. We all love him. Um, you it's know great to what see he on the sideline it is. Yes. Absolutely. He gets so excited. He's like a big kid out there. And, and you know, one of the things that when when Miami was struggling against Charlotte, it seemed like the perfect role to go out there would be somebody who could stretch the floor a little bit, who could handle bigs defensively on the perimeter. And there's a perfect guy by the name of Chris Bosh, and he just wasn't out there. So I guess that adds to it a little bit is that everybody wants to see Bosh out there. And unfortunately, he's not. So I think it, the bigger focus now is just moving on with who you do actually have on the roster and out on the court. And looking forward to facing a quality opponent in Toronto.
1: Exactly. And by the way, that that blood thinner commercial, Zarelto. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's it. And uh, he's in that commercial with Kevin Nealon. So I just imagine Chris Bosch now walking into the Heat, American Airlines Arena, or wherever the Heat's offices are, with Kevin Nealon dressed up like a doctor and just being like, this is my doctor. He says I'm good to go. And Kevin Nealon's like, yeah, he's good to go.
0: Sure. Yeah. And why not? Arnold Palmer, too, I guess. Yeah. You know, hey, Arnold Palmer
1: could football. be in there. Yeah, sure. He looks like a doctor, I guess. Yeah. Um, Slap him
0: in a nurse's outfit, why not?
1: <laughs> so
0: Actually, on second thought, probably not.
1: Probably not. Kevin Nealon's probably more...
0: Uh, <laughs> the nurse's outfit kind of guy, sure.
1: Um, all right, so definitely want to talk about Raptors. Let's just take a moment and reflect on a couple of things for that Hornets series. Because that was... Now that it's over, it was, that was a thrillingly terrific series. I mean, it would have been the worst series ever if Miami just would have lost in Game 6, which they almost did. But thanks yes. to Dwayne Wade's final three minutes, he made two three-pointers. I mean, I was going ballistic on my couch. I just couldn't believe it.
0: Well, as, as you know, uh, I went dark for game six and seven. <laughs> just couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the, the stress of seeing it live. Attack me, if you will, but I felt much better about the decision. There was nothing quite as joyous as, as logging in after three hours. A three-hour absence, away from computers, away from my phone, away from everything, and logging on and seeing that he had managed to pull out a victory, both for Game Six and Game Seven, it was great, very rewarding, and I feel comfortable with that. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take any crap about it. It was the right decision in in retrospect. Had they lost, eh, well, I'm sure I could have moved on one way or the other, but still, it was great. The other thing is that you know, you and I I have talked about it. We watch it
1: though. I'll point that. out. Of
0: course, yeah. I'm not gonna not watch those games, but. You know, it was just, you know, you try so hard covering the NBA and, and the sport in general. And it's like you try to be as unbiased as possible. And then you learn that shit goes out the window as soon as you're watching a Miami Heat playoff game. It's like, oh, damn it. All of a sudden you're cursing at Jeremy Lin and Kemba Walker and you're forgetting you're forgetting everything you've ever learned in journalism school. And, and it's just <laughs> it just goes out the window. But you know what? It, it worked out. Game six and seven. Great wins. So I'm, I'm glad I got to see them after the fact.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. Like I thought by now, I would have been a little bit more, like I would have been able to separate my emotions a little bit more from this thing. Um, but I think I was texting you after this game, after when you know all was said and done. That I don't think I've been that into, like an emotional into a, a basketball game since I think the 2013 Finals. Like specifically since like that, since Ray Allen hit that three pointer. Yeah. That was probably the the closest thing that I felt because even the 2014 finals, it was very clear pretty early that that was the Heat had no chance in that one against the Spurs. Um, that's
0: a good point. Yeah, that's a good
1: point. And so I wasn't nearly as like I was I was right there, ready to be that emotionally invested, but it was very clear like the Spurs just like just like they did to the Heat, just beat that out of me really quick, and I was like, okay, I'm out. Um, and then obviously you had the year after, uh, no playoffs, et cetera. So no real key moments. And then uh, this season, I mean, that was Dwayne Wade to, I mean, it just speaks to, like, all the X's and O's and everything. All the work we put into, all the preview podcasts and the breakdown posts that we do on various sites and and everybody does. And just all this X's and O's and dissecting the bench versus the other bench and the center versus the other center and everything like that. Just goes, you know, you almost forget to just sit back and think, like, oh, wait, no, Dwayne Wade. And you just you only like Dwayne Wade can't hit threes, right? That's his narrative. Just he doesn't hit long range jumpers. He's he's not the same Dwayne Wade he was in twenty ten or something like that. And you get a lot of that talk, but you very and and then you get people like Charles Barkley and, and like older players on, on T V say, No, that's Dwayne Wade, like he's a legend and he comes to play and then it's like very just abstract things like that that we kind of just scoff at. Us right. us bloggers, we kinda of have this like Liberal tendency to just like scoff at people to say that say things like that, um, but then it like it just rears its head and right in your face sometimes, and it's just like no, that that matters at some point. And I thought that well, mattered.
0: I mean, it, 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 raise your hand if you thought that the series would boil down to a heroic three-shooting performance, you know, three-point shooter performance for Dwayne Wade. Like, nobody predicted that would be what decides the series, you know, that he would come through with a two-three-pointer, a career, what, 25% three-point shooter? I mean, missed
1: 21 straight prior to that? Hadn't made one in the calendar year of 2016? I mean, all of these things. I mean, and then so you have that that whole idea, right? Like, the Hornets, this idea that, oh, no, we'll live with Dwayne Wade beating us with a three-pointer. But do you... Like, do you even live with Dwayne Wade getting a shot in those final three minutes?
0: Because of his reputation as a Correct. clutch player, etc.?
1: Because he's a legend and he's the second greatest shooting guard of all time.
0: Ooh, second greatest.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't Whoa. even get distracted.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big bomb there. Are you, are you leapfrogging him past Kobe Bryant?
1: Kobe's one. Michael Jordan's like three or four.
0: Oh I'm I'm now talking about different podcasts. Uh, Michael Jordan 1, Dwayne Wade.
1: I got I got I got, oh, okay. I got MJ, Wade, and then Kobe. Nice.
0: Okay. Well that's that's probably a podcast for another time.
1: Yeah. We'll we'll rank all time shooting guards. But anyway. Um we, yeah, I mean, do you like so one of my pet peeves that I realized I have with Mark Jackson among the many that I have with Mark Jackson as a as a uh, color commentator. Yeah. He very A lot of times, what his, like, go-to thing is, you live with him taking that shot, and if he makes it, so be it. Like, next time you listen to a game on ABC where Mark Jackson's coming, how many times will he say that? Like, Dwayne Wade will take a long-range shooter and be like, you live with Dwayne Wade taking that shot, and if he makes it, you live with it. Right. That's his, like, go-to excuse for every defense, and then you wonder how he doesn't have a job as a coach, because that's, like... Like, he'll just give Russell Westbrook as many wide-open threes as but, but and he wants. But it's like we just whatever.
0: talked about today. I mean, if it, we had thought that the series would boil down to that kind of shooting, you can kind of live with Wade, you know, popping that. You know, what it, it could have been like, you know, if, if would Udonis Haslam have hit a three-pointer to salvage that game, you wouldn't have expected that. So why not let him take that shot from, you know, 25 feet?
1: Right. But, yeah, that's the whole thing is we, we talk about all of this stuff, and then it's just in that moment... In the final minutes, in a tight game, I mean, even before our previews, you know, we all said this is going to be a tight series. Who's going to win it? And a lot of people said, I think the Hornets are going to win it. Um, Even though I think Miami was favored by most people, I think. But, you know, you forget to just take into consideration just, like, one reason, Dwayne Wade. Like, the Heat had Dwayne Wade, and the Hornets don't. And Kemba Walker was... Equally as heroic, he was. And, I mean, he scored 37 points in that game six, 36, 37 yeah. points? 37, 37. Yeah, so, I mean, he and he was incredible. I mean, he was absolutely amazing. And if, if the Hornets, if one of Dwayne Wade's threes don't go in and the Hornets win that game, then the, all, everything's about how amazing Kemba Walker is and how he's elevated himself to a new level of NBA stardom. But that's not how it happens, and that's really kind of, I don't know if it's a flip of the coin as much as it's like, that's the difference between, like, Legends and All-Stars.
0: Well, I mean, the, you know, watching the game after the fact. I think you, you, you kind of, you probably get a lot more carried away with the, the weight shooting in the moment. And not that it was any less important or magical as you're watching in a replay like I did, but, you know, you can kind of process it a little bit better knowing that it's just a contributing factor towards the overall end goal of a victory. And and while weight shooting was you know, incredible there were certain things that led up to that were you know if those things don't happen then way doesn't get the shot the the opportunity to shine um for me the, what the turning point was in game six was when the team was down I, I believe they were down seven early in the first quarter midway through the first quarter and then the heat responded in a way that we hadn't seen them do in charlotte um when they went to charlotte every time they got down and into a certain deficit they just kind of let the game get away from them, and they were just in that that hole that they could never quite climb out of. And, and instead, in game six, they climbed out of that hole, were able to take a lead, and were able to continue building that so that by the time Charlotte made their run late in the game and tied up the score... Uh, I think that they wound up tying up the score, or mm-hmm. pretty close to them. Maybe in the third quarter, I think they wound up tying it. But by that point, then Miami was able to continue building. They didn't lose the confidence. They didn't lose their identity. I know that sounds like Spolstra cliche, but it, it was. You could see it. It was pretty evident that they just didn't panic the way that they had in games three and four. Maybe because there was a realization there was more on the line. Um, but either way, they just they they continued to do what they've done in order to succeed. And 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 there were little things like. Udonis Haslam taking a charge, Lou oh, Deng yeah. taking a charge. I mean those little things they were, they were key moments there that, that for me, again, watching it in, in hindsight, it was it was great to see them. And then of course, yeah, you know, no doubt Dwayne Wade shooting was the, the, the story and, and deservedly so, but there were other little things that contributed to that moment.
1: Yeah, and the heat were up by like five points pretty consistently throughout the fourth quarter. And that's a hard, like, the Hornets are just breathing down your neck, always down by, like, four, five, three, two, five points. Again, just, like, it's always, like, right in that zone of, like, one or two baskets. And and that they maintain that, that slight one-two basket lead for, like, a good portion of that game in that fourth quarter. And that's hard and to not panic and just be like, God, these guys just don't go away. It's hard to just keep keeping your foot on the gas like that. Just keep, you know, pushing it towards 80, 90 miles an hour when... Really, all you want to do is start cruising at like sixty. You know what I mean? Like, um, so yeah, all that and uh, Goran Dragic in Game Seven, that reminded me a lot of Mike Miller, hitting like a bazillion three pointers they hit to close out that Thunder series. Yeah, it was just like, oh that, oh right, that guy can do that stuff again. I forgot about that. Just like the, nobody suspected Goran Dragic would be the guy to have a big game, burst onto the scene in Game Seven for just to close them out and just in a way that he just he played so well it just like completely shut down the hornets like there was just just like Mike Miller's three pointers like all of those just went in and there was just nothing the thunder could do and it just blew the game wide open and that's what Goran Dragic did
0: it was a little anticlimactic wasn't it felt was like the a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and i don't mind that at all let me tell you i i feel and they're probably i mean it's great to be on the winning end of a close game but I'll take a blowout any day of the week. Especially I think it's right after
1: that closed game. I don't think my heart could have taken that. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it was certainly a lot better to know that there was a comfortable lead. I think uh, a friend of mine told me he, he left after the third quarter because they were already up 20 or 30 at that point. So it, it's, you want to have that kind of cushion to, you know, to just sit back comfortably and enjoy the the series win. I don't think it was in doubt. I know a lot of people kind of expected Charlotte. To, to come out ahead because I thought they expected Nick Batum to be healthy and stay healthy throughout the series. There were some matchup problems. I think the heat managed to just change Charlotte's identity from what they had been over the course of the regular season, that three point shooting team and go back to being that, that grinded out team. We talked about it with Chris Barnwell in the last podcast, you know, that, that Charlotte had to kind of redefine themselves into something familiar for, for them. And it worked in games three, four and five. And, uh, and then you know it was, it was it's very good though it, it is it feels very good for Miami to not just have handled this kind of adversity but to be able to move on and and face like I said a good opponent in Toronto
1: so what are some takeaways from that series to you I know for me Hassan Whiteside got a lot and consistently gets a lot of nitpicking throughout the game doesn't close out well but or you know chased a block as he's stat chasing right now but I think for that series, he played really, really well. I think he got shut down um, offensively, but defensively he was as good as he could possibly be. I thought he did a really good job screening and re-screening. Um, and especially in those last two games, and especially in Game 7, he was in Kemba Walker's head in Game 7. Like Kemba Walker couldn't do anything after just scoring 37 points in Game 6. And... I thought he had a really tough assignment because he had to take care of Al. Je- and this is why Clifford's move of Al Jefferson into the starting lineup was so good. It wasn't just the size to put a bigger tree in the paint to block Wade and Dragic from going to the rim. It was you put a guy with such a post presence like that in Al Jefferson in the starting lineup. Now Whiteside has to worry about him because you're not really worrying about Cody Zeller to that effect. You know what I mean? Like you don't you can you can kind of rely on your help defense on Cody Zeller for Al Jefferson. You got to put a body on him from the get go in the high right. power offense. Um, Because once he gets to his spot in the post, it's done. And we saw that time after time, and it gets frustrating. It's like, well, he's doing everything he can, but he also has to worry about, you know, Jeremy Lin and Kemba Walker being funneled to him because that's what the Heat were doing. They were running guys off the line and funneling everybody to Whiteside. So not only does he have one eye on Al Jefferson, trying to keep him from getting deep into the post before he even gets the ball, he's also got to worry about Kemba Walker and Jeremy Lin driving right at him. And... That's a tough thing. That's those are tough things to juggle when you're Hassan Whiteside. You've never been in a playoff game. You haven't even been in the NBA for that long, for God's sakes. Like, you know, you you've consistently gotten better on defense, but you're still pretty raw. Like, that's for me. I think the person that grew up the most in this series was probably Hassan Whiteside.
0: Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, um, I actually wrote a preview on uh, a Whiteside and how he'll fare in the next series, and I think. And I think that dual challenge. I didn't even address the the whole pick and roll situations. You know, having to deal with Walker and Lynn attacking the paint, but just having to you know adjust to the the different styles of, of both Zeller and Jefferson. You know, one the the low post master that Al Jefferson is, and then Zeller kind of diving at the rim constantly at a much higher pace. You know, those kinds of things really it's hard to be able to handle both of them in, in different moments. Of, the game. But I think even though he wasn't always successful, just having faced them certainly lends itself to some gross and uh, some growth rather. And, 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 you know, he, he, I think he kept his composure. I know we've talked about it before the, the, the whole head case situation, it's probably vastly overstated. Um, and I think he was able to really stay in the moment, stay focused. And we saw those moments there where Chris Bosh and Juwan Howard and others were kind of telling him, look, you got to stay focused. The foul trouble, a lot of those, some pretty dubious ticky-tack fouls, really you know, kind of took him away and out of the moment a little bit. But he was able to regain his for the most part, except for one game where I think he, he only scored 80 points. But other than that, he was pretty effective and, and, and a, a continual pro- presence there for Miami, particularly defensively. So, I that's probably a huge one, but I think also as far as a takeaway is concerned from my perspective, just the overall adversity that the team faced. I mean, mm-hmm. going through that, um, going through a game seven series, very difficult, not knowing what you're what, what's going to happen and knowing that your legacy is on the line for, for Dwayne Wade and that he can't advance in the first, past the first round, et cetera, um, without LeBron James or without Shaquille O'Neal, those kinds of things, they they matter to him. And we saw him kind of take it personally in game six. We saw guys, veterans like Joe Johnson and and Lewald Dang step it up, even Goran Goran Dragic in Game 7. These guys wanted to be able to take it to the next level. They face a very tough challenge in Charlotte that, you know, we're playing fairly loose. I think for them, they really had – I don't think they had the expectation of advancing to that next round. I think they were just kind of playing very carefree. And and you saw that after the beatdowns in Game 1 and 2, they were able to say, you know what, we still have – the opportunity to to kind of get a pull off an upset, and and they nearly did, you know? Um, So for for Miami, I think just facing that, being able to win a crucial game six at Charlotte, being able to come in, close out the series in convincing fashion, um, I, I think it really helps them prepare for whatever other challenges they face in the playoffs.
1: Okay, let's take a quick break before we talk Heat Raptors. If I had to describe NCS with one word, the word I choose is phenomenal. The best thing about NCS is that you get into meet loads of new people and you're doing things that you'd never get to do if you didn't try it. NCS has given me so many skills, not just, like, independent, teamwork, friendship. It's given me lots of experience that I can adapt to pretty much every situation in life. I thought it was just something that would look good in my CV, but it's changed me as a person. This summer, don't miss out on an experience to change your life. Search NCS for more info. There's a lot of things to dive in in this series I think there's a lot of really key matchups and I think the one that kind of sticks out as the headliner is Jonas Valanciunas versus Hassan Whiteside you can even just lump all of Toronto's centers Jonas Valanciunas and Bismarck Biambo against Hassan Whiteside and I think that's that's one of the major ones I think right
0: yeah, I think um, I, I've seen that maybe Biombo will come in a little bit early, yeah. um, you know, rather than waiting till I think they normally put him in like towards the second in the second quarter, I think. And then um, if he comes in early, then maybe you can bring Valencionis back into the game and he can kind of feast off of whoever's in there for, you know, for Whiteside when they take him out. Either Rick Roberts, who's probably going to get more minutes, or, you know, Amara Sattermeyer, who, you know, didn't even play. I don't think he even played in game six or seven. So um, yeah, McRoberts is getting the bulk of the minutes as a backup center now, and I don't know if Spolster makes that kind of adjustment. We'll see uh, what happens in game one, but yeah, that, that's a tough matchup. I think that's that that center position. It's it's probably not going to be the one that swings the series one way or the other because there's just there's too much production in each backcourt for each team. But it, it's going to be a, a, an interesting one because Valenciunas, you know, he's got the height, he's got the size. He can defend. I don't think he's nearly—he's physical. I think a lot of people kind of blow over or blow up rather his his athleticism and his uh, you know his mobility. I don't think he's nearly as agile as people think he he is. He's not, I, mean, uh, I, 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 I see him being a little slow in plotting, Right? I mean, yeah. that's that's maybe that's just my take. But he's you know he doesn't run well. He's not much of a leaper. I've seen him get stuffed by the rim on a number of occasions. He's not. He's not half as athletic as Whiteside is. No. He might be smarter than Whiteside. He might be a little bit more composed and in the moment. But as far as overall athletic ability, Whiteside wins in a landslide.
1: I think, for me, Valanchunas is very Enos Cantory.
0: Yes. Yeah, he's very he's, good. He's yeah, very absolutely. raw offensive
1: skills but can put numbers up in bunches. But he's not going to be consistent for you. He's going to be really maddening for fans and frustrating for fans at times. Um like Whiteside, he he's big, but doesn't really use his lower body all that much. He just kind of mm. relies on those his his big arms and just trying to put the ball up near the rim and hopefully it goes in. And just like him and Whiteside both have good touch, so most of the time it works for them. Right. But very raw. Uh, not like Al Jefferson, who's like all feet. Like if you watch that Al Jefferson Whiteside matchup, I mean Whiteside's feet weren't moving, and Al Jefferson's feet were con- like that pivot foot was.
0: Constantly it's ridiculous moving around
1: it. Yeah, it was insane. It's like, but you know, you look at their upper bodies and it doesn't seem like much is going on. And maybe the casual fan, not to discern fans from fans, but like a casual fan might just watch it and be like, "Why does Jefferson keep getting around him?" And it's just look at the feet. That's where the entire battle is. Valentinus right. doesn't do that, but and right. Bismarck Biombo certainly does not do that. I mean, he it's you're lucky if he even catches the ball in offense. But um, <laughs> yeah. I think you lump the two of them together and you have almost something similar to Whiteside, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Not, not with that he, athleticism, but something similar, good defensively, well, raw offensively.
0: But Biombo's athleticism maybe isn't at a par because he's smaller than Whiteside, but he's got the springs. He's got the, the overall out. hops. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got the, he doesn't have the length of a Whiteside. Whiteside is a physical freak. I mean, right. the kinds of things that he can do, it lends so much to his success, but, you know, he's got to continue to develop. And we've seen that development over the last season and a half of his his tenure in Miami. But, yeah, you're right. You, you put the two of them together, and they make a, a pretty close facsimile of what Whiteside provides.
1: And the thing is, when Valanciunas is in there, I think you have to take advantage of him on the, on the defensive end, like you said. He's not going to be great covering pick and rolls. He's right. not going to, you know, unless Dwayne Casey somehow tries to mimic what Clifford did and just pack the paint. And leave shooters open and dare Miami to shoot him again. I don't know if Clifford laid down a blueprint for whoever the Heat face in the playoffs from now and going forward this season, but um, it'll be interesting to see how Casey does that and if he even says like, "No, we'll dare Miami to shoot and beat us that way," even though that one for the, that that worked for them in game, in, seri- in excuse me in round one. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that matchup is really interesting. Um, any other matchups that you're really looking forward to in this series?
0: Oh, I mean, I think that Kyle Lowry, Goran Dragic one is one that's uh, that's going to be. Dragic
1: a... is better suited to defend Lowry than he was Walker.
0: That was a question that was posed to us in our mailbag, wasn't it? Oh, is it? Yeah, I believe so. I think. Uh, let me look it up it was, specifically right. now. Uh, uh, Jeff oh, Nicholas, Jeff Nico at
1: twenty on Twitter, is Lowry a better matchup for Dragic than Walker was? Okay, we'll we'll di- we'll dive into the mailbag a little early.
0: Yeah, um, I I think so because I, they have a shared history, having played as teammates in Houston, so they face each other before. I think Lowry is certainly very good, stronger than Walker is, but slower. And I think as a result, we saw that a lot. That that Kemba Walker, part of Kemba's success, was that he was able to use that high screen and roll so effectively and use a burst to get absolutely. Well past Goron Dragic, so that he had a either a clear shot at the at the rim, or he would already be in position and he would draw a foul from Whiteside or a help defender. So I think in in that case, I don't think Lowry draws as many free throws. I don't think he's as much. I don't think he's going to sell contact as much as Kemba Walker did. So I would have to say that Lowry is probably a better matchup but he's also I think more dangerous just because he's such a, a great shooter from the perimeter and although he struggled in the in the series against Indiana you don't want him to regress to the mean it's a bad time for him to all of a sudden regain his shooting stroke against Miami so shot Miami was very effective one. what was that
1: 32% in round 1
0: yeah that's not good that's, that's not good far far lower than what he shot during the regular season so um, you expect him to turn it around, but Miami, you know, Miami was doing such a great job of limiting Charlotte's three-point opportunities and their shooting overall. So, you think maybe if they sustain that uh, against Toronto, maybe they'll be able to to keep that yeah, effective. You know, maybe they'll be able to limit him and Demar Derozan, who's not much of a perimeter shooter, but uh, you know, he he doesn't he, he does face the floor a little bit, and he also he looks for that outside shot occasionally. They've got a lot of shooters on there. So it's a, it's it's Spolstra has his work cut out for him, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and just to piggyback on Lowry, I mean, Dragic, I think, is a better... This is going to be easier for him to handle. I don't think Dragic is necessarily going to struggle with a size or somebody a little bit more physical. I think Dragic was more physical than Kemba Walker. Kemba Walker was just way faster and quicker than him. Yeah. Um, so I think Dragic should be able to put his hands on Lowry a little bit more, be able to control him a little bit more and filter him into the lane, into the paint where Whiteside's standing. Whiteside had a hard time, a lot of times, guarding Walker and Lynn because they're so quick, and they got by him so fast, and he just didn't have the speed to, get back in, to, to catch up with them again. That's not the case with Lowry. I think Lowry's qu- clearly not as fast as Lynn or Walker, so that'll give Whiteside a little bit more time to adjust in the paint and, and get in position to defend Lowry and get in between Lowry and the rim, so that there's that little wrinkle as well. But can Lowry
0: can Lowry dish it off to a cutting Valencianas who might be able to right. catch the lob and finish in that sense?
1: That that dump-off that even Walker had, that Walker-to-Zeller dump pass, Right time Whiteside stepped up, that's right. going to gonna be involved too. But I think what the Heat did in Game 7 to send that extra defender into the paint really helped curtail that. And right. I think that's something that maybe Spolster learned that he's going to do in case that... That kind of play rears its head against Whiteside again in this series. But another, one of the other matchups I am concerned with, and this this leans in Toronto's favor, is the bench versus the bench. And a lot of what Toronto did this year, the reason they're better this year than last year, is because of that bench. Bismarck Biyombo was, was a steal for them in free agency. Corey Joseph is, could could be the best free agent signing, right? Of players right. that switch teams, I mean, I mean, you have LaMarcus Aldridge, I should say like role player type people, but um, it was a great signing for them, and was better than Lowry in that first round series. Um, you know, Patrick Patterson came off the bench for a lot of those games, he started in the last game, I believe, I don't know what, I have no idea what the, case of the starting lineup is going to be, but if he's coming off the bench, he's been a great player for them. Uh, they he had... started. I think
0: he started because I wrote about him for today's fast break, and I think he wound up starting game four, five, and I think wait no five, six, and seven. Five, so six, yeah, seven, he...
1: last three. So yeah, yeah maybe he's starting, and maybe he's still in the starting lineup. That means because they
0: took Louis Scola out of the starting lineup, right? And then they they had Demar Caro and Patterson there at the three and four, kind of the same lineup with Joe Johnson. You know, equally in size as Joe Johnson and, 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 and Lou Lu Deng. Hmm.
1: Well, that's interesting. So you have so. Basically, you know what? I listened to Zach Lowe's podcast this morning, and he even mentioned that with Patterson in that starting unit, kind of like what you're saying, is the Raptors already kind of tweaked their lineup to match up more with Miami, but they got rid of that adjustment period. So Mm -hmm. that can help them get out to a fast start in this series, which I thought was a really interesting point. Um, But to get back to the bench, I think that Corey Joseph... Bismack, Biambo, they're game changers. I mean, they're not just role players. They can change the game. They, they change the pace. They sure. kind of have major impacts. Um, and I do worry about what the Heat do. Now they have Josh Richardson coming off the bench. He should be able to play Corey Joseph pretty well. They have um, no backup center. So that's an issue for Bismack, Biambo. Like, what do you do when Biambo's in there? Um, what do you do when Valanciunas is in there and Whiteside isn't? Like, do not I don't know how you fix that. Um, so there's that issue because the 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 Raptors are certainly deeper in the front court than the Heat are. So I
0: think I think we I think you need McRoberts to be able to find some confidence again. I don't know if that means shooting a lot of long range jumpers, but I mean his hesitation is going to put a, a, a speed block there for anything Miami tries to do. But he you know you want to take Biombo out of the paint, and part of that is by having him you know, McRoberts, rather, be on the perimeter and drawing Biombo away from the paint where he's effective at protecting the rim, grabbing rebounds, etc. So, Why not go all the um, way, then?
1: Why not just go all the way on that side of the spectrum? Lowe pointed this out on the podcast. Why not go with that, that all-wing lineup with Luol Deng at the nominal fives position? I mean, I, I honestly think at this point... Is, he
0: physical, enough, is he physical enough to, to keep Biombo out of the lane there? As I mean, I know Biombo's McRoberts not is much of a I threat think. offensively. As much as McRoberts I guess, is, yeah. I think. That's a good point. It's it's possible.
1: I think maybe a spot minutes for Haslam. Uh, I think Stademeyer has a chance against Biombo. I think you know just if you lump all those minutes between McRoberts and Stademeyer and Haslam, just like okay, whose legs are fresher, and throw whichever one it is. It's going to be a messy rotation, um, and I know Spolstro's typically likes to keep just the one backup big, but it would be interesting to see if they if he went maybe like a couple minutes here and there when Biombo is in and take Biombo out of the lane completely with Luvaldang in at the nominal five. I don't know. It's a, yeah, that's an interesting option. He did, he did do it in, in that Charlotte series, I think in game three or game two or three, and the Hornets just blasted it. But Yeah. Um, and he didn't go back to it, I don't think. But it would be no. interesting if he kind of went back, at least tried it. Um, but yeah, I think Corey Joseph is another issue. I think he can—he's somebody that is so dynamic. He's—he's he's good enough to start and be a good starter in this NBA, in, in this league. But he's a major weapon for Toronto coming off the bench. He's a—he's a way better version of Lou Williams. I mean, he can score, he can pass, he does it all for him. So. Um, that's, but that's my main issue with that Toronto bench. I think he can he could swing a game in the series.
0: Having seen the way Richardson guarded Kemba Walker, I'm not nearly as concerned about Corey Joseph. Hmm. You know, I I, I think Richardson if not necessarily shut him down. I think he could limit him. I think when you look at his speed, I mean, when you look at Joseph's speed versus Walker's, Walker is clearly faster, and I think Richardson was able to harass him, if not necessarily again you know, he didn't necessarily limit him because he still had that 37 point outing, but there were moments there where Jay Rich just had great defensive presence where he was able to stay with him and, and, and keep him from getting into comfortable spots. Um, and I think, I think he can duplicate that success against Corey Joseph and maybe even take him out of the game altogether. Uh, and and that would certainly swing things in Miami's favor. So that's, it's going to be diff- you know interesting to see. And, uh, aside from that, though, who else comes off the bench for them? James Johnson. Um,
1: James Johnson is capable of blowing up some plays. Um,
0: Terrence Ross, if he finds a shooting stroke, and but you look at you know and Luis Scola, he's been shooting a lot more from three point range. I don't know I that he's necessarily going to be out
1: of that. Re- if if Scola's in, the Heat are just gonna. I mean, I know Scola had that one game in the ser- in the regular season; he scored like eighteen points or something crazy like that. Right. Um. I mean, Norman Powell, I know he, he was...
0: Oh, in- God. Sorry, yeah. I, yeah. I know a lot of a lot of Heat Twitter I've seen hates the kind of comparison to, you know, Josh Richardson, but that kid can play. I, I, I liked his game in college, and I liked him coming out of the draft. I thought he was going to be a great second-round pickup, and, and he's turned it around, so he's he's a very good player. He could, he could be uh, definitely a, a Heat killer.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, there's a lot of... The Raptors have a lot of random scrub heat killer potential. Skola, Jason Thompson has random random scrub heat killer written all over him. Uh, James Johnson.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, all these guys. DeLon Wright, for God's sakes, why not? Just throw him in there. Uh, (laughs) They're a little bit... I think they're a little bit deeper, and they at least... They have bench guys who can make, like, real cases to be in the starting unit. They have good bench players. Not to say the Heat don't, but... Toronto's bench has kept them afloat a lot of times, especially against the Pacers, and a, a lot of times in the regular season, so I think that's an issue. But moving on after the bench, what are some other things? I mean, DeMar DeRozan and Dwayne Wade. I mean, who defends DeMar DeRozan in that starting lineup?
0: I yeah, mean, DeMar that's... and
1: Dwayne Wade don't go at each other. They they don't defend each other. Um, I've heard wall dang thrown out, but that means that nope, somebody doesn't... I mean, Joe Johnson has to slide down and guard Patrick Patterson, I guess. Um, how do you see that playing out? Who do you think guards DeMar DeRozan from the tip?
0: I think you have to leave weight on him. Really? Yeah, I, I don't see how you can afford to pull him off there. I, I know it's it's certainly... I mean, I think you kind of trust that maybe DeRozan isn't going to be as comfortable. Kind of Maybe you can do enough to funnel him towards towards whiteside and 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 deny him easy access at the rim. DeRozan's not a shooter, you know, much like Wade isn't. So I think you don't have to worry about him catching fire from the perimeter. Um so I think it's just a matter of trying to limit his mid-range game and, and you know maybe maybe you can live with those shots. I love Mark Jackson I think maybe it's just something you have to you know get used to. If if, if tomorrow DeMar is DeRozan's the only guy who's gonna kill you um, you can live with that, I think, if you just, you know, shut down everybody else and, and try to limit them effectively. I think it's that's... A, it's a if, good
1: strategy. It would be the opposite of the Pacer strategy, where they put Paul George on him like glue for the whole game and it was like, everybody else has got to beat us.
0: Right.
1: And that didn't work for them. I mean, it kind of worked for them, but they lost the series. Because eventually, <laughs> that's, Marjorie Rosen got going.
0: Yeah, and, and that's more due to the fact that Indiana didn't have anybody other than Paul George, who right. was really much of a contributor.
1: Well, George Hill George Hill was good at defending he is Lowry good as well. Um, I like. I think that's a real strategy that you're that you're going with, though. Just leave weight on DeRozan, live with whatever DeRozan's gonna do. You funnel, you just have him chase chase him off the three point line and live whatever, and and funnel him towards Whiteside. Um, you worry about those minutes that Whiteside's not in and DeRozan is in. You know, if Casey uh-huh. can figure out how, if that if that's what the Heat do, you figure Casey tries to adjust the minutes so that Whiteside's out. He throws DeRozan in there. Um. But I definitely think that's a strategy that they can go to. I don't think anything's going to be... I don't see Spolster going with one thing. It's going be a, It's not going to be like the Pacers. Paul George is on them. That's what we're doing for this whole series. I think it could be a, a few different things. Um, but I think if you move Wade, you can move Wade onto Patrick Patterson or even Damari Carroll. Um, you have Joe Johnson on the other one. And then you can have Luol Deng and Damar DeRozan. That's the one I've seen most commonly thrown out there and might be the case... When, you know, at, in that first that that first possession of the game, that could be the case. Um, the other thing I want to throw out there is, what if you start Justice Winslow? Because, over
0: Joe over Johnson? Over Joe
1: Johnson. Because I think that could solve two things. And the reason I say start, I, I say you want to start him this way for a reason, but if you slide Justice Winslow into that starting unit, he's the closest thing that we have to Paul George. Uh, he's not the two-way player Paul George is, but on-ball defender, he's very good. He's all-star worthy already on-ball defender. And I think you put him on DeMar- You could put him on DeMar DeRozan, you, you put Dwayne Wade on DeMar Carroll, and you put Joe Johnson on Patrick Patterson, or vice versa, it doesn't really matter, because you're really only worried about Patterson spotting up from the corner, so you can even put Wade on Patterson. Um, and then have Joe Johnson chase DeMar Carroll around
0: but with Winslow's shooting taking a dive in in the opening round doesn't that limit Miami's floor spacing considerably
1: I mean you worry about it but I think they also figured out like in that later in that series have justice Winslow like dive hard towards the rim along the baseline and start and like just get him involved he'll bring the he brought the ball up I think in game 6 he was bringing the ball up quite a few times so that you can't ignore him you know what I mean? Like when when he's bring he's he's a very capable ball handler, and so when you have him bringing the ball up, you have to put somebody on him, otherwise he's just going to drive right towards the rim. Um, mm. I thought that worked really well. So if you can if you get creative with it, like um, maybe you don't start him at that point, but I think there's some things to do. I just I don't think you can let DeMar DeRozan get going because he got his confidence back in Game Seven against the Pacers. And the reason I, I think starting Winslow as an option would work is because you just stick it to him from the get-go. Don't let him get hot. Don't let him get going. Because if he does get going and he does have a confidence and says no, this is my series, I'm going to take this one over that can that can jeopardize everything for the Heat. Um, and they're starting this game on the road. They're starting the series on the road. So you want to try to steal one of these first two home games in order to swing the series back in your favor. So doing that as soon as possible and adjusting the tone of the series as soon as possible plays their favor. And then by bringing Joe Johnson off the bench, now you have somebody you can run your offense through coming off the bench. You have somebody that kind of evens the playing field so that when Toronto comes in, they don't blow out your bench out of the water um, because Joe Johnson's involved and kind of evens things up. I think it's... I mean, I don't know if I would do it. I mean, I'm not in position to make those... And I'm glad I'm not in position to make those decisions, but I think it's interesting. And it might, if he doesn't start with it, I think that lineup works. And then maybe doing your rotations throughout the game to a point where Joe Johnson is with that bench unit, which we've seen him a lot with Joe Johnson, Dwayne Wade, or play with, you know, three reserve guys. But I don't know. I think it might be an interesting way to switch things up and kind of get the Raptors on their heels to start the game.
0: Is it because you think Wade's just not capable of staying with DeRozan, or does he have to be much more engaged than he's been at some times? Or is it just that at this point in his career, he just doesn't have that first step that he can he can stay with DeRozan?
1: I think that he could, but I, don't, I think with Wade, you want him focused on offense and helping okay. out on defense. So I think if you put Wade on a guy like Patterson, who's essentially going to stand in the corner and try to get a three-point shot out of there, you allow right. him to help off the weak side a lot of times, and that's where he's best. I mean, Dwayne Wade is an below average on-ball defender at this point, but he's still a good off-ball defender who can get in passing lanes and create some things for, for the team. So I think that's what you want. Um, and I think you want to utilize Justice Winslow at the best you can in this series. Mm-hmm. And I think having him against DeMar DeRozan and just doing the Paul George thing. It's like, no, you guard DeMar DeRozan, that's your job. And then just making life a living hell for DeMar DeRozan. And then, because you also have to worry about Kyle Lowry and DeMar Carroll. So now you have to have Dragic on Lowry, you know, I don't know, like Joe Johnson on Carroll. like You just don't have that many really great wing defenders with size. So I think you use that, and you try to line up those minutes as much as possible, because I think that... I mean Lowry and DeRozan, they could tear up the Heat's that Heat starting unit. Otherwise, I, you know, like with the, we live with them hitting mid range shots, but they're good at hitting the mid range shots.
0: Sure, sure. With the emergence of Richardson, do you think we see uh, Tyler Johnson in the series?
1: I think Tyler Johnson plays over Gerald Green at this point. So maybe it's I don't a nice know. Guy. I, I
0: I would say that, except for the fact that Gerald had to, you know, he had his points in Game Seven. And you want to kind of keep that conference going. I know it was mostly garbage time, but you still want to kind of keep that conference going because I mean Spol, Spolster went to him pretty frequently during the Charlotte series, so you, you you know you figure that he's probably going to use him again against Toronto.
1: It'll be interesting. I think uh, it could be fluid. You know, if if Gerald Green doesn't isn't feeling it, he could go to Tyler Johnson. But I think I think you're right. I think he probably starts with Gerald Green, sees what he's got, and if it's not working, maybe goes to Tyler Johnson.
0: I think we kind of addressed this in a roundabout way, but uh Alex Rosa asked us via Twitter about um you know, whether or not we could convince him that Whiteside isn't the X Factor. Hmm. I don't think I'm not he sure. is. You know, I don't know. I don't know that he is either. I think I think he him and Valence I think the I think he can dominate Valenciunis, but I just don't think that that's the, gonna be the factor that decides the series. It's gonna be big games from Lowry and or DeRozan or it's going to be, you know, decidedly in Miami's favor, I think. If, if they can limit their backcourt, that's going to be huge for Miami. I I know that might seem a little cliche or redundant. You know, it, it was the game plan for Indiana, and for the most part it worked because they struggled throughout most of the series. Um, and I think you want to try to duplicate that. I don't think, again, you, do, you were just talking about it and as far as your overall defense of DeRozan. You know, you if you want, you know, DeMar Carroll to try and, and kill you or Patrick Patterson or even guys like Scola or Terrence Ross off the bench. Um, I think you can live with that. You'd want to limit Kyle Lowry and DeRozan from going off for huge numbers. Unless that's your your only focus. You're going to shut down everybody else completely and just allow either DeRozan or Lowry to kill you. And maybe that might work as well.
1: Yeah. I think, um, I think Whiteside at this point is consistent enough that he's not the barometer for the team. That's a good point. Um, So I don't see him as the X Factor in that way anymore. I think that you can make a case that Hassan Whiteside's Miami's best player. You know, not counting... More consistent. Yeah. And to me, I think the X Factor in this series is Goran Dragic. I think Kyle Lowry and Dragic, at at their best, are all NBA-type point guards. And between the two of them... If one of them can consistently get the edge and defend the other one better, and whoever controls, I think both both of these teams have are traditionally slower teams. No, none of them play with a lot of pace. They move the ball a lot, but none of, but during the regular season they weren't like top ten in pace. You know, the Heat came along post All Star break, but they were still never like super fast. Um, especially when you threw Whiteside back into the starting lineup, so whoever can just be, like, a point guard and control the tempo of the game and kind of just put their imprint on it, to me, I think that's going to speak volumes. Whoever can control this from the start, that to me is going to be the X Factor, because both of them are so evenly, you know, are so evenly talented and, and, and skilled and do so many similar things. Whoever comes out on top in that matchup can set their whole team up much better. <sighs> I don't know. It's a, it's going
0: to be a fun one, so...
1: Yeah. Um. Alex Rosa also adds in that mailbag question, I don't know that you like... I know you guys don't like making predictions, and that's what he was talking about with Whiteside, but do you want to make a prediction? Do you feel comfortable making a prediction? Or are we just... We're not doing that.
0: I we're not. I mean, I, 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 I know where I stand on have it. have
1: to say that we're not doing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's... Yeah, tease them just enough so that they keep coming back for the same thing the next time around. Because exactly. without making a prediction, I know that there will be another playoff series at some point involving Miami, and we will not make a prediction for that one either. No.
1: I have no idea who they're playing or even what year that's going to be in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we got to... M- that's the way...
0: That's Yeah, I think that's the way you build long-term listenership, right? I mean, you know, kind of tease them. They might be... A futures, you know, playoff series this year, or it could be in 2017, it could the be old, in 2019.
1: The old radio, the old radio thing, where he's just like, and coming up next, David and I make a really bold prediction that will blow your mind after this break, and then they come, and then they come back, and we're like, it's, like, not a very bold prediction, like, Gordon Rockets will score at least 18 points in one of these games, and I'm like, really, that was the major bold prediction? <laughs> um... We could make a really bold prediction to say, hey, I think Stephen A. Smith is right and Kevin Durant's gonna sign with the Heat.
0: I mean I've I've maintained that as his best dark horse option all year long, so I think it's certainly a good one.
1: Yeah, my favorite my favorite Twitter argument right now is Hassan Whiteside versus Kevin Durant and why the Heat would be better off with Whiteside. That's my favorite argument right now. Ooh. I don't believe that. I'm just saying that's like my favorite argument that like consistently happens perpetually on Heat Twitter.
0: Um, yeah, that's right. I, we did see that. I've, I I guess you and I had laughed it off early in the season, and we dismissed it, but it keeps pro- cropping up, doesn't it? It
1: does. Yeah. It's inherently involved oh, well. in the grant conversation, so. All right. Well, we're looking forward to this game. I mean, hopefully everybody gets a chance to listen to this podcast before um, the series starts, but um, we'll revisit it after a couple of games, and uh, yeah. Not making predictions. And we might have
0: we might have a a, a a Toronto-based perspective on the series in the future podcast.
1: Oh yeah, he actually just DM me. He said, "Yeah, absolutely, when." So we'll figure it out. How's that for tease? Nah. We did it.
0: <laughs> this this is the kind of this is the perfect <laughs> note. And if you want to find out who that mystery guest is, you'll have to listen next time on the Heat Check podcast.
1: <laughs> perfect. You can find the Heat We'd Check. We'd like project. to thank
0: our sponsors, Vitamin Grow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are all yeah <laughs> i don't know xeralto
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> Zeralto. do you buy Zeralto? do you have blood clots not anymore thanks to Zeralto. <laughs>
1: uh i'm just a fan of kevin neelan so that's why i pop those pills um you can find the heat check on itunes rate us review us say nice things about us we say this every time but seriously go rate the heat check on itunes we it Actually, really helps overall. It helps us come up in searches and stuff like that. So if, like, you search on iTunes, like Miami Heat Podcast, obviously you wouldn't because you know where to find us. But dumb people that don't know about this podcast don't know where to find us, and they need to search bar on iTunes to figure it out. So if you rate us and say nice things about us, they'll be able to find us because that boosts um, our search optimization on iTunes. So that would be really nice. So go do that, please. Um, in fact, whoever... Uh, and any new reviews from now and until the next podcast with our Mystery Toronto guest, uh, we'll give them a shout-out on the podcast, just to say thanks, because it means a lot to us. Um, and then you can find us on the Hardwood Paroxysm Basketball Network, where this podcast and so many other great podcasts live, um, that's part of Hardwood Paroxysm. And um, where else are we? Stitcher? Blanc that Talk sounds Radio. about right.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think so. All
1: right. And you mind... Mine writing and David's writing on hardwood paroxysm among plenty of other places. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, David.
0: You got it, Wes Baby. I like you. So. Grips on your ways, front way, back way. You know that I don't play. Streets not safe, but I never run away, even when I'm away. OTOT, there's never much love when we go. I pray to make it back
1: in one piece To celebrate summer, we're offering a free pair of flip-flops when you spend £35 on clothing, shoes, accessories or beauty at M&S Free those toes and strut into the sunshine But hurry, this offer ends 4th of July Only M&S Terms, conditions and exclusions apply subject to availability See selected stores and online for details Ace is the place with the helpful hardware folks